Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Today we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2. As we continue our study in the book of Philippians. Before we do so, let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, specifically as we come to this text that so adequately, deeply, richly teaches us concerning Your humiliation and Your exaltation, pray, Lord, that You would help us to see these as not only or merely theological theological constructs, or just things that we know as doctrine, but that they would change our lives, that they would change the way that we act, even as we recalled last week, that we would let our manner of life be worthy of Your Gospel. Lord, we pray that You would use Your Word now to change us. We pray this in Your holy name. Amen. So as I read this passage, there's a book that I've read. It's been many years now. Um, it's called Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield. I recommend it with some caveats. It is not a children's book. It's not a young adult's book by any means necessary. And so uh, it's, it's an adult book, but it's very good. Not a Christian book either. It's a historical kind of fiction book and it's about uh, the nation of Sparta way a long time ago and there was actually a movie movie recently, not recently, it's been 20 years even since that movie was made, but it was made about the story, it's just not based on that. And it's about the battle of Thermopylae, which the Greeks take on the Persians. And again, the movie was called The 300 and it's okay, but this book is really, it's really good because there's a king in this story called Leonidas and he is a leader of his people, but he not only commands his troops as the leader, which is what we see with the Persian king, just merely commanding and almost throwing his troops at the Spartans, but Leonidas fights alongside his soldiers. He does everything that he asks them to do, seeing himself as one of them rather than over them. Over and over, he sacrifices his own well-being for the sake of his men, and they reward him by being some of the best soldiers that history has ever known. As we move into this section of Philippians, we move into the book's probably most quoted text other than uh, Philippians 4.13, which we'll deal with later. But we see Jesus modeling this kind of servant leadership over the church. Like Leonidas, Jesus gives his life for the sake of his men, but unlike Leonidas, Jesus is still with us. He is alive today. We'll consider what it meant for Jesus to become like us in death and why that is so crucial for the Christian experience. The passage today fits well with the commands of last week for us to, in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Those commands stand just fine on their own, of course, but when we see the perfect example of them lived out, first, of course, we see our sin, our inability to do these things, but that hopefully drives us right to Jesus. And that is the point of this passage today. We consider this text we'll look at with three main ideas. First, the mind of Christ. Secondly, the humiliation of Christ. And then thirdly, the exaltation of Christ. And so with that, let's look together at the text. 
Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So again, a little context. Remember last week we had the commandment from the Apostle to let our manner of life be worthy of the Gospel or literally translated to behave as citizens worthy of the Gospel. That part of this is not only the faith that we have been gifted from God, which we read in that passage, but also the suffering that we must endure, which is also a gift from God. Part of that call of endurance is an admonishment of then how we should treat others, not out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This seemed to be the real crux for the people of Philippi. They were dealing with some sort of outside pressure that we're not sure about, and Paul's continued calls to unity have this kind of qualification to them, that they would consider the interest of others not just themselves. And this is difficult when things are great. When everything is good, it's hard for us to consider the interests of others, not just ourselves. How much more is it going to be difficult during times of adversity? I remember in those first months during the pandemic when people were hoarding things like toilet paper and hand sanitizer. They were going to the grocery store and filling their deep freezers with meat and all kinds of weird things that we normally wouldn't do. No one was starving, but everyone thought that their lifestyle was going to be changed, so they padded against it. And it didn't matter that some didn't have their most basic food needs met. They were going to have ten sides of ribs in their freezer no matter what, because we're looking out for our own interests rather than the interests of others. We act out in adversity ultimately because these little g-gods that we have are under attack. These gods that we call comfort, security, luxury, they're all flimsy gods. They're unable to protect themselves and they desperately need us to sacrifice the dignity of others in order to serve and protect them. But even as we protect them, they only punish us, expecting more and more in return and we never feel the things that they promise. We never actually get the comfort and the security and the luxury. We only have the opposite of those things. By serving them, we feel unrest. We feel vulnerable. We can't ever have enough dust around us to satisfy us. So measure that against what we have in our text today. A picture of the only real God undergoing the worst adversity ever known and coming out on top, not for Himself, or not just for Himself or His eternal glory, but for those people that He calls My people. 
we are called His people. And in that, He calls us to come to Him and to find rest, to find eternal security. We are encouraged to come to Him without money, to the living waters that He offers, and buy everything that we could possibly ever need. As we walk through this very important passage, I urge you to consider Jesus' call on your life and to, as Paul told us last week, to look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others and watch and see and learn how Jesus did just that. And that brings us to the first point, the mind of Christ. Look with me at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is speaking of the difference between natural man or the unbeliever and the spiritual man or the believer. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 2 as we look at this passage quickly. 1 Corinthians 2, I'm going to look at verses 14 through 16. And this idea of going back and understanding more of what it means to have the mind of Christ, verse 14 says, the natural person, or this is, this is his uh, way to say the unbeliever, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, or the believer, judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the Lord so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. What is the difference here? Is it anything that's found in man that makes the difference between natural man and spiritual man? No. The difference is the Spirit of God working in the life of the man or the woman to change them. In Christ, we have been made alive. And as part of that making alive, we read further in 2 Corinthians that we are new creations. The old is gone. The old mind is gone. The new is come. We have the mind of Christ. In this recreation or us being reborn, as it's said in other places, we have this mind of Christ. And so Paul telling us in verse 5, have this mind among yourself which is yours in Christ. We aren't waiting to attain this mind. We have it. That isn't to say that we've become all-powerful or omniscient, all-knowing. doesn't mean that we haven't His actual brain. We aren't Jesus. We're not saying that, obviously. Yet we have His mind. We can know His Word. And, on these, and we can have His Word on the things that we struggle with. And His Word has been made known to us, whereas the natural man isn't able to accept the things of God at all because they are folly to Him. The spiritual man can see these things from God and know and trust them because we have the mind of Christ. And what is this mind that we have? Again, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Just looking at the preceding verses, we can know what it means to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. We can know that we are to consider others more than ourselves. Not only can we know it, but we can know that it's wrong to do so. That we should and could and can do something different about that. Unlike the unbeliever, 
we are able to actually do different. That change is driven by the fact that we are different. That we have the mind of Christ. We're going to see exactly how Jesus does this in a second, but I think it's important to note that every major problem in an inside the believer's heart, in a church congregation, comes from us considering ourselves greater than others. There are things that are beyond our control, obviously, like sickness and death and other things, but other kinds of problems, they're all this. They're all rooted in a love of self rather than a love of God and a love of others. Paul called the Philippian church to complete my joy by being of the same mind. And this reminds us that they are of the same mind, that we are of the same mind, and that is the mind of Christ. It is something we would do well to remember while we have disagreements for time to time, not just within this body, but other churches around or other faith persuasions that these things should not cause us to separate because we are unified under the one name, Jesus Christ. This isn't a denominational thing. This is an inside the church building kind of thing. This is across the street kind of thing. We are called to be of the same mind, so let us do that so that we might glorify Jesus Christ who suffered that we might have unity. That brings us to the first point, the humiliation of Christ. Let's look again at verses 6-8. through And again, this is spelling out how Christ is doing this having no selfish ambition and looking to the interests of others rather than himself. Verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's quite a bit here. Quite a bit. So I'm going to try to unpack it carefully. There's a doctrine known. Again, we talked about it earlier as we recited the shorter catechism. The humiliation of Christ. This doctrine is summed up wonderfully in these few verses here. We aren't careful though. We can come away thinking some wrong things. It's very easy to do so. The reason I know is because many, most Christological heresies, that is to say, Concerning the doctrine of Christ, any heresies over the years, all these isms that you learn about in seminary are usually stemming from these few verses. I only mention these heresies because I think it's good to be aware of it because they, they crop up from time to time. They don't go away. They weren't original to the people that came up with them. They're not original today. It's just the same old untruth that even stems back to the garden. So looking at verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What Paul is saying here about Jesus is that he is always was, always will be God. Yet, there was a time when he didn't consider his deity as an advantage to him. In other words, he He set aside His divine right and privilege in order to be born as a man. He didn't get rid of it. He just chose not to use it as an advantage. Jesus didn't stop being God. He didn't get rid of His power for a time or for all time, as some people would say. He just took on the form of something much lower than God. He took on the form of a man. And even, as we're told here, a servant. Verse 7. 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So again, we believe that Jesus is God. We believe that Jesus is man. He is both fully God, fully man. He is the eternal Son of God and has all the rights and privileges therein. Eternal Son of God, been there for all eternity and will be there for all eternity. But every major heresy concerning the nature and work of Jesus Christ gets one or more of these things wrong every time. While Jesus didn't act for God as a time, He did not stop being God. He became man and dwelt among us. Fully man. He slept. He got sad. He got hungry and tired. He could die. Which He did die. But before He did, He was obedient. Even to the point of death. Verse 8. And it's because of this obedience that we can say that the law has been fulfilled on our behalf. That our debt has been stamped paid in full. It is finished. The debt that I can't possibly pay for myself because it would never be said of me that I was obedient. Jesus was. Is. He did all of this for us. And yet... I can look at someone's life here on earth and the things that they've gathered around them, the dust that they've gathered around them and see that they might have more than me and I can covet. And I can think of this Jesus who gave His life for me, the very Son of God, and think perhaps He's holding out on me. Maybe this whole He became sin that I might become the righteousness of God is really just an unbalanced way of thinking. What happened to Jesus is the ultimate example of unfair and unbalanced and wrong. In reality, He could have stopped upholding His killers for just a split second and they would have vanished. Yet He allowed them to live. In fact, over and over again in church, we have been given this idea of the church has to suffer while the wicked prospers. We see this over and over again. Why? Why is it given to the church to suffer? Because Jesus did. We can, we should count it as all joy to get to suffer with Him. Actually, we're going to talk about that as we get to chapter 3. But these verses 6-8, through eight, I think it's a good practice as we consider our own sin, as you reflect upon your sin. The reason we reflect upon our sin is that we might turn from it. And I think these three verses are very helpful in doing that, especially because we consider as we how we act toward one another, considering the Philippian church as being called to unity. When I'm settling a dispute between two individuals, a lot of times I'll walk through this passage as a way of helping them to understand true humility and selfless behavior, pointing out their own sin. Jesus, though He was in the form of God, didn't use this to as an advantage. And so the question that we can ask, and you should ask yourself in light of this, is how often do I use my position of power as an advantage? What little power we have on this earth in order to mistreat others, especially those that I love. The opposite of those actions, of course, are what Paul commands us to in verses 3 and 4, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, to look out to the interest of others. But we don't. We do the opposite. 
How often has I, have I emptied myself of that power and position in order to serve another person? We so oftentimes are looking out for our own interests rather than the interests of others that we don't understand that others may be struggling. Do I care enough to consider their position? Or do I, am I still worried about how I'm being slighted in some way? Imagine if our Lord Jesus had concerned Himself with how He was being slighted in all of this. How have I humbled myself in obedience? How often has that obedience caused me to make a sacrifice? Or is the word sacrifice just not a part of my vocabulary? People who don't make sacrifices for others don't understand that what kind of sacrifice has been made for them. And I know that may sound harsh, but it's true. In order to understand Jesus' sacrifice for us, this is the kind of life we ought to be living. When we read that it has been granted for us to suffer, a lot of times we have this idea of Paul being in prison or Paul receiving beatings. But so many times it's just going without so that someone else can have. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. We can't possibly give that much. We can't possibly We aren't God. Yet we can give of ourselves. We have this mind among us. The very mind of Christ. And this is what we ought to be doing. But Christ was not only humiliated, He was also exalted. And that brings us to the final point, the exaltation of Christ. Look with me at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So taking all that in, the fact that the Son of God, eternal, became man, dwelt among His people, lived a life of perfect obedience, died on behalf of His people. Therefore, God has exalted Him. This isn't to say that Jesus is, has become more God all of a sudden. That He's attained this higher place because you can't be more high than the eternal Son of God. He's not become more powerful. He was there when He spoke light into existence. And so the fact that the Father has exalted Him doesn't mean that Jesus is gaining some kind of more powers or something like that. He's just taking on a different role as the Son of God incarnate. Whereas He had not been man, He is now the eternal Son of man. Son of God, fully man, fully God. Now He is the prophet that is to come. In Deuteronomy 18, there was a promised prophet. Here He is, in the flesh. He is the priest. Back in Genesis 14, we hear of this, this, this priest named Melchizedek. Well, Jesus is here in the order of Melchizedek, this eternal priest. He is the king. We've been studying 2 Samuel. We were promised an eternal king in 2 Samuel 7. Were we not? He's here. David's son, yet David's Lord. He is highly exalted because He is the Messiah, the Anointed One of Israel, at whose name every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, we read in verses 10 and 11. And again, I want to reiterate that Jesus, this isn't the point that Jesus became God. Right? This is, that's a Mormon idea. I'll just name it. That's something that the Mormons believe. We denounce that as rank heresy. 
Jesus has always been God. Jesus didn't pick His deity back up at the resurrection. He always had it. And I think that's very important for us to understand. Yet here, the name of Jesus Christ is lifted high like never before. It's the name that causes every knee to bow and every tongue to confess. Jesus is the Son that's prophesied in Psalm 2, at whom the nations rage and whom they plot in vain. He is the King set on Zion's holy hill. The nations are His heritage, the end of the earth His possession. The kings set themselves against Jesus, and the Father sits in heaven and laughs. Because at the mere voice of the King, the nations tremble. But it's also at this the great at the voice of this great king that his children will come. He said, My sheep know my voice, and I call them by name. And it's this name, the only name, at which every knee bows and every tongue confesses, the only name under heaven by which all people might be saved. We know these things about Jesus but we let them slip by us so easily anymore because we've heard them so many times. These things that we're taught as children, as adults, these are His defining characteristics. This is who He is. And all the while, He came and gave Himself as a ransom for His enemies, you and I, that we might have life and have it abundantly. And again, and we seek this abundant life so often at the expense of others. Rather than looking to the interests of others, we are selfish, we are conceited, looking only to fill our own coffers rather than to help others. Like the Philippians and like so many others, we have forgotten the most basic truth of our faith. As Jesus told us, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Why? It doesn't make sense. In a world that thinks that they are merely animals, they're just kind of sophisticated animals, it totally makes sense in the world, right, to look out for yourself. It makes sense to do everything out of selfish ambition, only seeking to propel yourself Maybe those closest to you, but still for your own needs. But others, they have to do it for themselves, just like you did, right? King Leonidas was the first to the battle line. He fought beside his men. He was willing to die for them, and over and over he sacrificed himself for their well-being. But he died, and he's still dead. Jesus went to battle against greater enemies, sin and death, the enemies that all men face. He won by giving Himself and He lives because the grave could not hold Him. How will the world know this? Jesus told us how they'll know this. By how we love one another. And so the question for you, brothers and sisters, is do you love one another? As you consider the people of God, do you love the people of God? Are you willing to not only consider your own interests, but the interests of others 
Are you willing to set aside whatever position you have in order to serve others? Are you willing to empty yourself to live lives of obedience? These are tough questions, but I believe the text demands them of us. Not for our sake or our salvation at all, because Jesus did these things in Christ. We have salvation. And I think it's important to say that the unbeliever here today can have this salvation too. The same way I have it, the same way anyone else has it. Not by doing good things, because Jesus did good things on our behalf to be saved. You need to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus That is the only name that you can be saved under. Every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Confess today that He is Lord. But the believer, we aren't earning our way to God. It has been done. But the call for us is to be of the same mind which is ours in Christ. So brothers and sisters, let us live lives so that the world might know Jesus And let us love one another as He has loved us. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we consider these things that You have done, we are thankful because in the work that You have done, we can rest. We have eternal security. We have all we could ever ask for and more. So Lord, we pray that You would help us to live lives worthy of Your Gospel. Worthy of the work that You have done before us. Worthy of the life eternal that You have earned for us. Not so that we would be glorified, but so that You would be glorified and so that the world would know that You are Lord. We pray this in Your holy name. Amen.